Hey, thanks for joining me for another installment of Christmas in Quarantine. It's Christmas Past's impromptu miniseries of indeterminate length. Stay subscribed for one new episode every single day until things are looking better on the COVID-19 crisis. Before we get started, as always, I hope that you are staying safe and healthy, that you're following all of the common sense guidelines, treating the situation with the seriousness it deserves, and taking your advice only from trained medical professionals. Also, I'd love to hear how you're doing and what you've been up to. You can reach out anytime at christmaspastpodcast at gmail.com or find me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can check the show notes for this episode for links to all of that. Now, today's episode is another installment of Storytime. For the last couple of weeks, I've been often reading you classic Christmas tales, but today we're taking things a bit more contemporary. Our friend Sarah Tipper has shared another one of her short stories with us. You may recall that I read another one of hers called Keep It All the Year back in 2019 during some of those Burr Month's bonus episodes. Today's piece is called Deck the Halls, and it tells the story of a young woman taking her grandfather to receive elder care. I'll come back at the end to say goodbye, but for now, please enjoy Deck the Halls by Sarah Tipper. She sat on the stone steps of the halls of residence, despite the chill of early December, which she didn't feel. She had a nest made up of her term worth of belongings around her. Heavy books, both in weight and content, there was a René Descartes and a Peter Singer. Her favorite clothes, CDs. Her personality was distilled into a suitcase, an army rucksack, and three large purple plastic boxes. The things she had flown the nest with, she had regathered, ready to go back the way she came. She was waiting for her granddad to pick her up in his little blue car and take her home for Christmas. She didn't look at her watch frequently because she was scared he wouldn't come. He'd never let her down. She looked at her watch frequently because she was excited to be returning home triumphant with a couple of decent essays to show off. She was the first in her family to go to university. She knew her granddad could have shown academically if the chance had been extended to him. He was smart as a fox that reads New Scientist and as solid as an ox. He was as solid as the seven-story tower block behind her. It was this example of stoicism that had got her through the tough ten weeks. At 17, younger than she was now, he had been in the army stationed in Germany. He'd been far from his home, much farther than she was now, working as a mechanic, so surely she could manage to stick at university. If she could do one term, she told herself, then surely she could do another and another. That would be the end of the first year. There would be exams to pass before progressing. She didn't want to dwell on those, not this morning, when she was returning to the safety of her old life. The block behind her was in an L shape, and she felt that she was too. She thought about how far she'd come in ten weeks, and she no longer felt worthless and unlovable where young men were concerned. She'd already learnt enough at university to make a difference to the rest of her life. She certainly wasn't the only girl whose first love dissolved in the transition from sixth former to undergraduate. She had a short list of interesting male prospects now. There was the philosophy student with the thoughtful blue eyes, the second-year physics student with long hair, and an art student with a quick pencil. She'd made friends with those from counties and countries she'd never visited. Each brought a little bit of where they came from to the halls of residence. She'd seen the shy and hard-working blossom in the garden of new knowledge and the cocksure and lazy falter at receiving poor marks. She'd seen the daughter of a vicar lose and regain her faith, and the son of a salesman realize that you can't buy brains. 
The little blue car appeared on the wide driveway, and she jumped up from the stone steps with a big grin. Morning, my duck. Is your brain full yet? Nearly, Gramps. You'll have to get a bigger hat. She filled the car with her belongings, and off they trundled, weighed down, but buoyant. There's some fudge in the glove box. He turned on the radio, and deck the halls filled the little car. They began to sing along. She loved to hear his powerful Welsh voice. Now, two decades later, she was in charge of a little blue car. It contained her granddad and his clothes, photos, books, and TV. His personality was distilled into a large sports bag and four cardboard boxes. She was driving her granddad to a care home. His working memory was clouded. It was not his working memory now. The everyday experiences of eating, of urinating, were occluded by a vile fog that stole his independence. He was the first in her family to go to a care home. She looked forward to getting there because she had dreaded this journey. It was going better than she'd thought, but she felt like a traitor. She reminded herself of the need to keep herself cheerful, otherwise Grandad would notice that she was anxious and catch her anxiety. There's some fudge in the glove box, she said. What's happening? We're home now. Oh. He didn't ask for further information, and she didn't offer it, despite his mildly perplexed face. She pointed to the glove box and repeated the fudge invitation. She pulled up outside what she had decided to think of as a sort of halls of residence for the elderly. She parked in the space nearest to the door, giving Grandad the shortest possible walk. They were greeted by the overbright, slow-talking manager. She was grateful for her taking over the burden of explanation. Now she and Grandad were equals. They sat in this new room, listening to the orientation information being provided by the smiling official face. They confirmed details on forms. He was Bertram Williams, date of birth 18th of April, 1928. He held the fact of his birth date like a life raft. It was a detail he'd never forgotten and spoke confidently. She was Jemima Byrne, next of kin. The building was L-shaped. L for love, loss, and the lemon scent of disinfectant. Jemima wondered about the previous occupant of this room, who had undoubtedly created a vacancy by joining the silent majority. She thought of the day when she'd been left sat alone on a bed in a strange room at a university. For her own good, her grandfather had to drive away from her. We're a happy bunch here, and your family can visit whenever they like. This is really a lovely time of year to join us, actually. We have a carol concert tomorrow. Next week, we'll be switching on the lights on the tree in the courtyard. You can see it from your window. The manager smiled at them both. They smiled back, uncertainly. Jemima thought it sounded like Granddad was in for a sort of geriatric freshers week, and the phrase, we're a happy bunch, had made her think of bananas. A shape shuffled past the open door. And that's your next-door neighbor, Elsie. I'm sure she'll tell you how much fun we have. Elsie paused on hearing her name. Elsie was a woman whose mind was agile, but her body was frail. She raised a spindly wrist and raised her hand in greeting. She looked at each face in turn and intensified her smile. She had a way of making people feel approved of. Jemima needed this service right now. Elsie helloed and was helloed back. Elsie's full name was Elsie Elsie Fairweather. She was supposed to have been named Elsie Elise, taking a name from each of her parents' mothers. The registrar made an error not spotted by her family until Elsie was married. 
Her husband used to joke that he'd better do as he was told, or Elsie. Her husband had been a dreamboat. He'd sailed away, but she still felt the waves of his love in her memories. Elsie was in her ninth decade. She had accepted that she, like all others, was ephemera. This lifetime, this hour, it was much the same in the great cosmic scheme of things. Elsie had been introduced to the cosmos via the sky at night. Once a month, Patrick Moore would remind her of her insignificance, and she was very grateful to him. She was generous with her praise and miserly with her approbation. She kept a close eye on the happiness of those near her in case they didn't realize that the opportunity for it was a finite resource. Elsie waved again and made her way slowly past Bertram's room, heading for a chair that she liked to sit in and look at the garden. She watched darkness fall each day. She made the best of the activities available to her. The manager finished her paperwork. I'm just in my office if you need anything. The tea trolley will be coming round soon. The manager left them alone. Jemima drew the curtains. She sat back on the bed. She looked at her watch, trying to sense when would be a good time to leave. She both desperately wanted to leave and desperately wanted to stay. He asked. There was no accusation in his voice, just confusion. Yes, Grandad. We looked at this nice room and spoke to the lady who just left. She and some other ladies are going to look after you. I don't know whether I'm coming or going. What do I have to do now? You don't have to do anything. Just have a rest. They sat in silence. Jemima left when the tea trolley arrived. She switched on the TV before leaving and then felt bad about doing so. TV wasn't company in the same way that people were. Her parting words were that she'd pop in tomorrow after work. When they left her head, the forced casualness of them jarred on her nerves. Elsie caught her eye as she waited by the entrance exit for a care assistant to let her out. There was a keypad to prevent residents from wandering off. Don't worry about your granddad. I shall look out for him, Elsie said. Thank you, Jemima smiled sadly. She wondered if Elsie had all her marbles, then felt bad for the disrespect. An assistant freed Jemima, and she left. Elsie made her slow way back to her room. Hello, Bertram. I'm Elsie from next door. How are you keeping? I don't know whether I'm coming or going. None of us do. I shouldn't let it bother you. I'm just on the other side of that wall should you need a friend. Do you prefer being called Bertram or Bert? Call me Bert. Bert smiled at Elsie. He couldn't quite place who she was, but it didn't seem to matter. She shuffled off and his eyes went back to the TV. The next day, Jemima saw that paper snowflakes were stuck up on the inside of the windows. She remembered that they had made these in her warm junior school in the warm kitchen of her halls of residence. She signed into the visitor's book. She went up to Bert's room. He wasn't there. His high-backed chair was empty. His bed was empty. She felt a brief stab of panic. Suppose the shock of the move had been too much for him. She had left him just 24 hours ago. Bert is down in the TV lodge with all the others, love. The carol concert has just started. I'm Kelly. I'm his main carer. I was on my day off yesterday when he came in. Any questions or concerns you have, now or in the future, you can ask me. Come on, I'll show you to the lounge. Jemima let Kelly lead her. There was a group of six middle-aged singers singing while shepherds watched their flocks. Jemima spotted Bert before he spotted her. He was sat next to Elsie. Bert began hesitantly singing. 
Jemima saw Elsie encourage him, shepherding him into his voice to lift his spirits. There was a spare chair on his other side. She slid into it and smiled at the soft old faces. They all clapped at the end of the song. Hello, my duck. These singers are ruddy good, Bert said. Jemima kissed his forehead and said hello to Elsie. Then she joined Bert, Elsie, and the octogenarian ensemble in the next song, Deck the Halls with Boughs of Holly. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that. And if you're interested in more from Sarah Tipper, please check the show notes for this episode because I will put a link to her Amazon page where you can get her whole collection of Christmas stories. Join me again tomorrow for something completely different. And until then, let me remind you as always that Christmas Past is produced in sunny San Mateo, California by yours truly, Brian Earle. Be sure to follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And please do join the private Christmas Past Facebook group if you haven't already. And one other request... If you're enjoying these daily episodes, I have a feeling you have other people in your life who could also use a little Christmas spirit right now. So why not spread some Christmas cheer by helping more people discover the show? All you have to do is tell a friend about it or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Both of those are quick and painless ways to show support that take less than a minute, but they really do make a big difference and help the Christmas Past family to grow. So if you do leave a review, I will even send you a Christmas Past sticker and a handwritten Christmas card is my way of saying thanks. And you can reach out to me for details on that. Until tomorrow, stay safe and healthy, look out for one another, and may your days be merry and bright. <laughs>